This is Inside the Writer's Head with Danny McLean, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton Counties Writer in Residence for 2020. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here is Danny McLean. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. I'm Danny McLean, the library's writer in residence for 2020. On this podcast, you can expect conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, and the literary arts. Our guest today is my friend and colleague, Daisy Hernandez. Daisy is the author of the award-winning memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed, and co-editor of Colonize This, Young Women of Color on Today's Feminism. The former editor of Color Lines magazine, she has reported for The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Slate, and she has written for NPR's All Things Considered and Code Switch. Her essays and fiction have appeared in Asterix, Bellingham Review, Brevity, Dogwood, Fourth Genre, Gulf Coast, Juked and Rumpus, among other journals. A contributing editor for the Buddhist magazine Tricycle, Daisy is an assistant professor in the creative writing program at Miami University in Ohio. And right now she's actually teaching at Vanderbilt as the visiting writer in nonfiction for the spring 2020 semester. So I'm so glad to get this time with you. Thank you, Daisy. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I've spent the past few days with your memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. Um, So I'm hoping we can start there. So it was published in 2014, and it's a beautifully written account of growing up with your Cuban father and Colombian mother and your Colombian aunties. Um, And it's so much more than that as well, obviously. Um, So you've had a long career in journalism and essay writing. What made you decide it was time to write a memoir? I actually started writing it in my 20s. It was a going to be a book of short stories. <laughs> and it never felt satisfying, actually. And I think that's because I really needed to work in nonfiction. I really needed to work in memoir. I wasn't sure that it was a memoir either. I thought it was just essays. Mm. Um, and at the time, I was just beginning to come out as bisexual or queer, which is a p- term I prefer. And um, and so I started writing to actually answer some questions that I have because or had at the time because, you know, we don't get a pl- blueprint from se- for sexuality from our families as, you know, women of color and less for like queer sexuality. So a lot of it was trying to just figure out what does this all mean and writing towards that. Um, but the memoir form became really important, I think, for me because we have an increasing number of memoirs by women of color and Latinx women specifically, but still few. I wanted more. Mm-hmm. I wanted there was some there's some kind of power to say this is how I remember. This is mm-hmm. what happened. This is how I think about it now when I look back on that time in my life, whether that time in my life was 20 years ago or five years ago. And that felt really important um, for me as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. And so you had been a reporter. So you, you know, you, you knew news gathering and like asking questions. But as I was reading, I was thinking, okay, Daisy had to go back and ask her mom, like, how do you remember this? Or, you know, your auntie. What was that process like? How did you, were there rituals that you engaged in to like get the courage up to go back and kind of fact fact check with your family? Or how did you go about that process of confirming your memories? I snuck in my questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I would be on the phone with my mother doing a sort of, oh, how are you? How's your day? Uh, Or we would be 
I would be there in person with her and we would be doing something and in the car I would sneak in a question. <laughs> I was definitely trying to sneak in, partly because I knew from my reporting experience that if if I added a, an element of formality to it, that I wouldn't get the same kind of answers mm -hmm. that I would get. You know, if you make it too formal, then people who are not used to being interviewed start to shut down. Right. And, and this even more so because... Um, their daughter or their niece. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was, yeah, was, uh, sneaking in. And then there were other times where it was like the most fun was actually looking for photos with my mom, like looking through photo albums and her trying to remember certain people and then her being surprised that I didn't remember. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, all the kids in the car were Cuban. Where else were they going to be from? <laughs> I was like, why do you think I would remember the ethnicity of other children in kindergarten? Right. But clearly it was so important for her. So it was really kind of also fascinating to see where the uh, gaps were in our memories or in our mother-daughter memories. So that's really interesting. So that was kind of a strategy that you took, like, hey, let's go look through some old pictures just to see what would arise, not necessarily even with a particular question in mind, but just as a, like, let's do this as a family um, to see kind of what we want to talk about and what surfaces. In some cases, I was actually looking for a specific photo. Okay. Like, are there any photos of my kindergarten teacher? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I have a very clear memory of her, which did not match the photo that mm. I found at all. So I write about that right at about the beginning that, yeah. of the book was I remembered this kindergarten teacher as being this hen like woman just this kind of like big uh, yeah just big bigger than life kind of woman um, who only speaks English and takes over and then in the photo she's this very androgynous um, skinny woman with glasses mm -hmm. and totally not menacing necessarily mm -hmm. um, so some of it was I was looking for a specific, specific photo and then in other circumstances it was like I realized at one point, wait, my mother has photo albums I've never looked at before. Um, and so then it was kind of like, uh, let's walk down memory lane together. But yeah, that's an effective way to get your family members to, right. <laughs> to interview with you. Right. I'm like putting that away in, in a file for future <laughs> approach. Um, so one thing that strikes me in the book is the way that you weave English and Spanish together and how that illustrates the larger point that you're making in the book about the process of being, as you put it, the first in a family to leave for another language. Um, so talk about that process of weaving the two languages together in your writing. Why was it important to you and what was your approach? I would think that there'd have to be, that you'd have to kind of be judging like, okay, for someone who's not a Spanish speaker, how much are they going to be able to kind of understand just through context? How much can I use? How do I how do I do this? So what was your approach? Yeah, I didn't think about the reader until much, much later. The early drafts were just allowing the Spanish to happen wherever it wanted to happen. And so the book is organized into three parts. And I do think I've been told from copy editors that the first part had a lot more Spanish because it's actually my, my family is in everything, but the beginning are those like formative years around language and around family. Right. And so there's a lot more Spanish. And then, and then sort of like, those were like early drafts. And then in like middle drafts, I was sort of looking at how I wanted to play with language. If I wanted to have a direct translation, um, if there was something else that I was trying to communicate or express. So there's a scene with my mother where 
she's beginning to learn more English from me. The tables have turned. So there's like a scene that I really loved that I created around her trying to teach me the numbers. And then this is now kind of like clearly I've now mastered more English. And so for me, it was important to not translate all of that um, because I wanted to show the process as it was happening. Mm -hmm. And then much later, you know, so the late drafts, I started thinking about the reader that doesn't speak Spanish and is, are there enough context clues? And at this point too, I feel like I, I trust the readers to go look it up as well um, if they really want the information very desperately. Yep. But, but I, I do feel very conscientious. Like, I feel like I've done my job. Like I'm very conscientious about is there enough context clues or if there isn't enough context, like is it the end of the world if you don't get it <laughs> and uh, you know sometimes the answer actually is yes yes like I really need, need for the reader to understand this and so I'm going to either provide a translation or work a little bit more on the context and other times like you know if they don't understand it, it's not a big deal it's one little sentence <laughs> right I, I mean that's been my experience of reading it it's like okay I f I'm like okay my Latin and French studies you know, I can put them to use. Like I, I know enough about romance languages that I can like read mm -hmm. most of this. But then it also has made me think about it's good for native, like for people who only speak English to feel a little discomfort sometimes. Yeah. You know, because yeah. that's so much of like what Americans often uh, kind of like get so nervous around. Like, wait a minute, I need to understand everything. It's like, no, why don't you just kind of feel the language wash over you, see what you pick up and just be okay with that. Yeah, and I think a lot of it too is about us as writers educating our readers. So a couple of years ago, I had an incredible opportunity to work with a student who's Korean American and he wrote about this experience with his mother and there was a whole page of dialogue that was in Korean, which I do not speak mm -hmm. or read. And it was so interesting for me to be on that end of it as a reader and to notice, oh, I'm uncomfortable. I'm afraid I'm missing. I'm having this whole range of emotions right. as a reader. I'm afraid I'm missing out. W what's happening here? You know, and it was incredible to see. And I also felt excluded. Mm. I was like, I want to know what's happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I've just had an incredible range of feelings of just one page of dialogue. Right. And what was so beautiful was that on the next page, the student uh, did not render the dialogue in English, but explained enough that it was a situation in which his mother had just come home from work. And it was clear that she had come home from work and been distressed. And it was because she'd had all this racist language thrown at her, this kind of verbal abuse at work by somebody who was really upset that she wasn't as fluent in English as he wanted her to be. And so I realized, oh my gosh, yeah, you know, while I was busy as a reader feeling excluded and afraid and all these kind of feelings, like this was really a moment of intimacy between mother and son. And this was really a moment of intimacy for anyone who speaks mm. Korean as part of the Korean community. And so that was a brilliant decision that he made to not translate the dialogue. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so I think part of it too, like now I share that with other people as like, check in with yourself. What's going on for you as you're reading? Like notice like your discomfort, like be with that, you know, mm -hmm. um, and see what happens, what's actually happening in the text, what the writer's trying to do. Right. Oh, I love that. So you received uh, an MFA in fiction in 2013. But as I mentioned, you'd worked in journalism before that. You'd written for Ms. Magazine and The New York Times. You were editor of Color Lines Magazine. What made you want to develop your fiction writing chops? What made you decide to pursue that MFA? I had been writing fiction since my 20s, just kind of tinkering in the background of life, in the margins of life. And I felt 
I felt very teachable in fiction. I actually applied to both fiction and nonfiction programs. I just said, let me roll the dice and see what happens. But when I was accepted and I went to visit programs, I noticed that I was having a lot of resistance with the nonfiction programs because I think I had already done a master's in journalism and I'd already been working. So I actually had a lot of you know, just ideas and and experience about what worked and what didn't work. And so I didn't feel as teachable. Mm. Whereas in fiction, I felt like, teach me everything. <laughs> um, and I also felt like I had, it had been a very long time since I had just had time to sit and read novels and short stories. And I and I could see that as a reader, like many of us, I had become used to reading magazine articles, much shorter pieces, or um, or just consuming certain types of nonfiction. And um, and I thought, oh, I could definitely improve my writing by studying fiction. Mm-hmm. And I think I and I think I did. Like I feel like studying fiction made me much more conscious of imagery, made me more much more conscious of the language that I use, of working with setting, uh, describing the people in my life as characters. So, yeah. It was very satisfying. <laughs> it's so gorgeous. I mean, reading your memoir, I'm like, wow, this is a whole skill set that for those of us who have been trained in journalism, it, it doesn't come easily. Like, it's not just because you're a good writer. You're kind of good across genre, you know. And so in reading your work, I was just thinking about the richness of your language and like um, just really admiring um, the skill set that you've developed as a as a fiction writer, even though it's not a piece of fiction, right? But you're using the tools of the fiction writer for for the purposes of memoir. So going back to your your long career in journalism, you had an internship at the New York Times editorial uh, on the New York Times editorial pages uh, after supporting Gail Collins with a book project that she was writing. Um, and then you worked in the Metro. You worked on the Metro desk at the Times as well. Um, there's an excerpt in your book about a period of time when you were um, an intern there at the Times, and you write about being assigned a piece about tanning beds, which isn't so exciting. Um, but you write, quote, I nevertheless find myself humming and tapping away at the keyboard, having the experience that comes whenever I write, a rush of joy through my body. I feel energized, happy, strong, even. So this was probably 20 years ago that you're, that, is that about right? Gosh. Yeah, a little bit less than 20. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't wanna, I'm having a moment of shock. Like, was that I don't want to add any, year, any years if they're not there. Yeah, yeah. It might have been like 17 years. But yeah, yeah. yeah it's, getting, so, it's getting to 20. Yeah, so almost two decades ago. And you write about just the way that writing makes you feel, even when you're writing on a topic that isn't exactly the most exciting thing. Do you still feel this way two decades later in your career? To sit and write, does it give you that sense of joy? Yeah, I think it's probably at this point, a more nuanced joy in some ways, like only because now I have more of a sense of when a piece is going to be difficult or it's going to be easy. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily correct in those assumptions, but I think that is the benefit of experience of like, oh, you know, you sort of like when I sit down, I already sort of have a sense of where I'm going to start, even if I don't know where it's going to go necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's it's, a, it's like particular joy in that as I write about in the memoir, you know, there were certain childhood experiences that I have 
that I had that left me disempowered. And writing was that place where it's like the joy is like a very powerful, like it's like, oh, I'm empowered <laughs> in this way, right? I can make something happen here with language. So it's kind of the joy that's associated with having agency and having a certain kind of power. So yeah, yeah. There's also, I think, more moments of like, oh, this is going to be hard and I know it's going to be hard. Right. <laughs> where maybe 20 years ago, I didn't know it was going to be as difficult. Yeah. Um, so I think that's also the benefit of experience as well. Yeah. I was recently talking to somebody about this. I think that there are writers who love to write and there are writers who don't much like to write. And I would count myself in that in that second camp. I don't really love to write. I love um, research and I love interviews. But when it's really time to sit down and do the writing, that's not my favorite part. And I think it's it's a lot. It's hard. Right. Interviewing is like, oh, we're like, I'm learning something, I'm, you know, but to sit down and write is like, OK, structure and flow. And this makes sense in my mind. Is it going to make sense on the page? And so I'm always I just love talking to writers who actually find joy in the writing process. I actually I think that's a distinction between journalists and writers like. It's very rare in my experience to come across a journalist who's actually excited about writing. They're really excited about reporting. Mm -hmm. And that was actually one of the, I remember at one point in my late 20s realizing technically I'm doing the work of journalism, but I'm not a journalist the way most of my friends are. Like, I, I do love the gathering of information. I don't love the interviewing, actually. But... I really love the writing part. Um, and I think, you know, I, honestly, I think if a, if a teacher had said to me in elementary school, you can be a nonfiction writer and you can write essays and you can write memoir and you can write longer books of nonfiction that don't require all the journalism, <laughs> I probably would have gone down a different road. But I, I think that's more the distinction between journalists and like creative writers. That makes a lot of sense. And you're right. People don't talk to us about the different avenues that are available to us in writing. It's like... There's a school paper, so at least that's I learned. Like, okay, if you like to write, you know, this is kind of the path, journalism. And Absolutely. There aren't a lot of adults, or in my life, there weren't a lot of adults around explaining to me the different kinds of ways that you can make money in writing. That's Absolutely. a great point. So, Colonize This, Young Women of Color on Today's Feminism, was initially published in 2002. And last year, was it last year that you co-edited yeah. uh, a new edition? So what led you and your co-editors to embark on the first project? And then what made you decide um, 17 years later that it was time to revisit this collection of essays? Yeah, the first time I was writing these essays that eventually end up in this memoir and um, an editor at Seal Press contacted me and said, you know, I feel like we need a, we need this bridge called my back for our generation. And would you be interested in doing this? And one of the things that I learned to do as a young person was to say yes to every opportunity. So I didn't think it through. I was just beginning to meet women who were writing their own books, but I didn't grow up in a community where people were writing and publishing books. I had no idea what that looked like, but I just said yes. I had no idea what I was signing up for. And she suggested to get a co-editor. And um, and I knew Bushra Rahman from uh, an amazing, amazing organization um, that existed at the time called Women in Literature and Letters. It was these three Latinas who started this organization because so many of them felt alienated in MFA programs, mm -hmm. felt like they weren't connecting with other women of color who were interested in art with um in the ways that art could have a political impact. Mm -hmm. And so so I knew her from that community and and yeah, the idea was like, yeah, we need this. And this bridge called My Back had come out in 1980 to really address racism within the women's movement. And for our generation, by the time we came around 17 years ago, 
many of us had already, you know, women's studies had been institutionalized by that point. So many of us were these privileged daughters in certain ways mm-hmm. of feminism. So it wasn't so much about calling out racism in a woman's movement, but it was more about like, we're all talking about race and feminism and a lot of other issues, but we're not seeing our stories on the page mm-hmm. and what it could mean. And we all have really complicated relationships with feminism for different reasons. So that was the first time. And yeah, like we just sent, this was before social media. So it was all word of mouth, emails being forwarded across the country, making actual phone calls to people. And over 200 women sent us essays and then we picked 28 from that. And, um, and the book, again, we were, we were like 25. We didn't know what we were doing. So not that I necessarily know that much now, but yeah, but we really did not know back then. So it it began to get taught in women's studies courses really by word of mouth. Like, And I also think as like we were part of a generation, like actually there's a number of women in the book who ended up becoming women's studies, women and, just, and gender studies professors. So it was a lot of women of color also moving the book forward in the classroom. And then the new book... You know, both Bushra and I were kept getting asked by people, when's the new one coming out? Like readers would ask, at, you know, book readings or other events, like, when are you going to do a new edition of Colonizes? Wow. And I know for myself, I would tell, and this oftentimes it was actually young women asking me, and I would always say, here's my phone number. <laughs> Call me when you want to do a new edition, because I really feel that you should do the new edition for your generation. No one called me. <laughs> so we finally <laughs> turned to each other and we're like, we need to do a new edition. Like there's so many issues that have changed in 17 years. And really the big thing for me, the big motivation is that the last decade, we've seen so much incredible social justice movements um, in this country that where women, young women of color are either at the forefront or at the center of it. And I was like, it is just, there's a lot happening here with youth activism and yeah, women of color are at the center of it and at the right. forefront. So we need to get these pieces. Um, and we actually proposed it before the election, the 2016 presidential election. So we thought the book was going to be coming out also like under the first woman presidency in the United States. So it was a little strange because it ended up um, working on the book ended up being so incredibly nourishing mm. and so revitalizing mm. in a way that I had not even thought that I would ever need myself, let alone anyone else. Um, but yeah, it was inc- it was incredible to work on it. Wow! And you mentioned the the process of collecting the essays in two thousand two, you know, a time before social media and making phone calls and this and that. How was the process different this time around? It was really different because what we did was we basically added nine new writers, and so we couldn't do the open call for submissions that we had done before. So. The benefit of 17 years later, knowing a lot more <laughs> more people, is that we already had a list of people that we wanted to include. So, I, so and some people I had like I had just met. Like I think I had just met Andrea Pino, and she um, was one of the co-founders of End Rape on Campus, and just an incredible, incredible activist. And so I immediately knew I wanted her. Jamila King, I had known for years. So I knew I immediately wanted her. Um, to write for the book as well. And then in other cases, we knew that we wanted certain stories, like essayists found us. So Mm -hmm. I know there was one young woman who approached Bushra. I think she was in Bushra's class, um, a writing class, and they started talking about the work that she was doing as an abortion doula. 
we had not been thinking about right. adding anything about an abortion doula. But when she started talking with Bushra and then Bushra and I talked, we were like, yes, we need this. This is so I really feel like there's um, there was a lot of intention and strategy. And then there was also this other beautiful magic part that happens where the essays and their writers found us. So it was uh, it was pretty incredible, actually. So you are from the East Coast and you spent a lot of time in your childhood going to South Florida and when we met, it was on the West Coast in Oakland, California, and we were both living there. You've lived in the South, and now you find yourself here in, in Cincinnati, in the Midwest, teaching at Miami. How has that been for you? And I'm thinking about, um, you've, in addition to living all over the country, you've taught all over the country. What is it? What are you learning from your students here in Ohio um, that kind of gives you some insight into the region? If I mean, you're reading people's writing about themselves, their personal essays. So I wonder if um, you've said a couple of things to me just like in our conversations as friends that I've thought have been really insightful about like the Midwest and, and how people kind of reflect on their lives and, um, and and what that says about the culture of the Midwest. But I'm just just generally curious, what has your experience been like teaching here in the Midwest? And what's it been like finding literary community here in Ohio? I think what really has stood out to me about the Midwest, and this is, I think, in large part from the work of students, I mostly teach nonfiction. I also teach fiction classes, Mm. but mostly undergraduate and graduate level nonfiction. And specifically with the undergrad students, they're the ones who are from here. Our graduate students are mostly regional, but, but have also come from different parts of the country with our undergrad students. I've been really amazed that like family is at the center. Family is deeply at the center of their lives. And so they usually have grown up in very close contact with grandparents, with aunties and uncles and cousins. And I think, you know, at first I was really surprised <laughs> about that. Um, but then I feel like, oh, that makes sense. Like this has been largely an agrarian part of the country, mm-hmm. right? This is our breadbasket. This is, and then there's also been like the factories, right? Mm-hmm. That have sustained people um, until quite recently. And so, yeah, so family's been really important. And then I've never lived in another part of the country where sports have been as important. So I still, um, I actually have great moments where on Sundays I'll, be at the nail salon and like if I go in the early part I don't know if I've told you this if I go in the early part of the day there's women getting their nails done for like I think football teams maybe or something (laughs) and they'll be like yeah and and they'll also like have babies with them that have like like one time I was in there and there was a baby with like a onesie for like some football I think activity Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and and then if I go later in the day on Sunday the place is like emptied out and it's like me and the girls Um, so yeah it's so I've never but again I think that really makes sense because if your life is organized around your family then it would make sense that you would want to do activities together that I mean I have no idea how affordable any of these activities are but even just getting together at each other's homes right, and watching it on and TV. watching it on TV mm-hmm. or going to the high school like so a lot of my students write about going to their high school football games or baseball games so yeah like it makes sense um, that kind of collective experience and I'm still in the process of finding literary community here I mean my work keeps me traveling and then I also have family in Florida and in DC. So I end up traveling a lot. So I don't feel like I quite have the same experience as someone who's more, um, much more located here Mm -hmm. on a day to day basis. That makes sense. Yeah, I just remember you you sharing that insight with me around like your students kind of 
uh, writing so much about family. And it, it really clicked for me as someone who's from here but has also lived a lot of different places. Like, yeah, that is a big part of our culture here is family and neighborhood. You know, that's what, when people say, oh, what high school did you go to? It's like how we place people. Where are you from? Like, what you know, where is your family from in the city? And so I just, uh, yeah, I really appreciated that kind of reflection um, as someone who's lived so many different places and, and has now settled here for the time being. Yeah, and you're reminding me when I first moved here and I was looking at different apartments, <laughs> someone... I, actually told me this was like kind of my introduction to Cincinnati specifically she was like oh yeah when when I got married I'm from the west side and I got married to a guy from the east side my mother was so upset and how could you leave me (laughs) and it was interesting because it was she was actually telling me uh, and she's she's was white uh, or is white, and she, it, but it sounded like this like classic immigration story. Right, <laughs> like, right. how could you leave me? Right. You know, the mother. You know, sort of like how could you go? And she's talking about the and, other side of I seventy five. And well, and at the time, I didn't know that right because I had just arrived and I've been looking at the map a little bit. But I assumed that when she said West Side, it meant a few hours. <laughs> I don't know. What, <laughs> so I was like, how far is the West Side? She's like, it's like twenty minutes that way. I was right. like, oh wow. <laughs> but yeah, it really indicated to me sort of the kind of level of connection that you have like also like with neighborhood and land I think too Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so you're working on a new book project um, or maybe you finished it I kind of think I'll let you share that but tell us a little bit about um, your latest book project what it's what is it about and where are you in the process yeah, it's a book I did not expect to write. It's called In Search of the Kissing Bug. And it's a work of nonfiction. It's a fusion of memoir and journalism. And in a lot of ways, the book started when I was six years old. I was translating for my auntie. She was diagnosed with um, a disease called Chagas or the nickname is Kissing Bug Disease. And it's a parasitic disease. And We thought it was very rare. She was diagnosed in New York City when I was six years old. So I was translating between her and nurses Mm -hmm. and medical officials. And I kind of, you know, so I grew up knowing about the disease and thinking that it was very rare. And when I was in my 30s, she died. And in the wake of her death, I started just becoming more curious. Like, what, what is the kissing bug disease? Like, I knew just the very rudimentary aspects of the disease. It's it's similar to Lyme disease in that you have a kissing bug or, you know, uh, a, what they call a vector that transmits the parasite from the insect to, to humans. Um, but I was really, really shocked to find that there's actually millions and millions of people infected mostly in South America, Central America, and Mexico, and that in the U.S. there's 300,000 people who have the disease, and it can cause, in the, sort of the worst case scenario, the parasite can basically kill your heart, mm-hmm. and there isn't a cure once it's in that chronic stage, and it's very hard to catch it in those first few weeks when you've been infected because it is very silent in the body. And um, and it also disproportionately affects poor people who are living in rural areas um, who have more exposure to these kissing bugs. So I basically went on this very unexpected journey. I just kind of became obsessed with finding out more about this disease that had, um, as far as I know, taken my auntie's life that she had lived with that for decades that you could live with this parasite for decades. And it actually doesn't kill most people. Most people, it actually has learned how to keep its host alive, essentially, Mm. right? And doesn't bother people and people are fine. So it was just, it was fascinating. I ended up traveling all over the United States interviewing um, more than 80 patients, 
scientists, doctors, epidemiologists, um, veterinarians, because dogs, and in the U.S., we actually also have the kissing bug, mostly in the South and um, in the Southwest. And dogs are much more likely to get infected because um, they'll be they'll be outside for longer stretches of time. Dogs, as you might know, are also like kind of little vacuum cleaners, and they'll go around and just eat up anything, including infected kissing bugs, probably. And yeah, I just I've met so many incredible people, and really ended up just thinking about how do we choose who we take care of. The disease disproportionately affects poor immigrants. Um, and so for for many, many decades, um, healthcare providers in the U.S. have not known about it because it's been considered a disease that you wouldn't see in the U.S. But it's not that you wouldn't see it here, it's that no one was looking for it, essentially. And so, yeah, so part of the book was actually kind of answering that question and then realizing that in a lot of ways when it comes to certain diseases, you know, we don't do elimination, we do containment, mm. you know. Um, so we have a lot of cases actually of tuberculosis that are in the U.S., but they're really contained to immigrant communities. And part of the reason for that is that even though we essentially wiped out TB in the U.S., we did not come up with a sustainable model for other countries, right, um, and in collaboration with other countries, right, so a lot of that has come back, you know, so now there's like multi-resistance TB. Mm. And with HIV, as you know, right, we've also contained it. Where have we contained it? To black, specifically male black communities in the South, right? And so we have not eliminated HIV in the U.S. We've just contained it to right. specific communities. And so, so I became really fascinated with that question as well of like, how do we dis- make those decisions um, about taking care of people? Wow. And when is that book coming out? It's coming out next summer, hopefully, from Tin House um, Publishers. So summer of 2020? 2021, actually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Exciting. So we'll keep an eye out for that. This is a library podcast. So of course, I'd like to know, you know, what are you reading um, for, you know, that supports your teaching? If you do reading for fun, what's on your, your nightstand at home? I do do reading for fun. <laughs> um, yeah, although, of course, my fun might be different from other people's fun. <laughs> I'm reading two books right now, and one of them is just really an incredible book that's about a very specific event that happened in Colombia, the country that my mother is from. And it's called The Palace of Justice. And um, the writer's last name is Carrigan. And I'm trying to remember what her first name is Anna. I think it's Anna Carrigan. And, um, so that was a situation in the nineteen the nineteen eighty five I think was the year where a rebel group M nineteen took over the Palace of Justice, um, which was the place where you would have Supreme Court justices, and that led the army was called in, and essentially it was a massacre. You know, uh, I think it was eleven Supreme Court justices were murdered, other people were disappeared. Uh, it's been very very controversial part of history and um so it's incredible yeah it's an incredible book to read and then i'm just is, realized, that, is that fiction or non-fiction and that is non-fiction i'm okay. sorry yeah so i'm reading two books of non-fiction okay. right now and then the other book i'm like wow i'm really i guess i'm reading downer <laughs> what's downer to other people is really fascinating to me yeah. and the other book is by a colleague at vanderbilt um dying dying of whiteness mm-hmm. um and he goes through three different states in the U.S. to look at how people support policies that actually end up having all these adverse negative um, impacts in, in terms of their health. So um, so guns, smoking, suicide rates, um, and, and really, and, and so part of his argument is actually that 
people are so, so deeply invested in maintaining a hierarchy that values whiteness, that they're actually choosing um, elected officials whose policies end up actually making their health outcomes much worse. Mm-hmm. And all of that said, I did read a novel. I feel like I have to end on a happy note. Yeah, you don't have to. So I did just finish Gish Jen's new novel, oh, I heard Resistors. And it is. It's just it's dystopian novel. It's it doesn't feel that dystopian. I've actually been saying I think we need to come up with a new word because the dystopian novels are not feeling it's here. that far off. Mm-hmm. So realistic dystopian novels, and that is wonderful. And it, it imagines the United States at a point where automation has radically changed the country, and a lot of people are out of work because their jobs have been automated, including people like me who teach for a living and people who write for a living. And it follows a family who is resisting that. And it's incredible. It, it really changed how I think about technology. So I keep recommending it to people like, if you really want to become more aware of how you're using technology, read this novel, Resistors by Gish Jen. Hmm. That sounds like something I need to read as someone who falls into the social media hole way too often to kind of rethink my relationship to to screens, that (laughs) form of technology. Well, Daisy Hernandez, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time to talk with us. I'm so glad you're doing this. I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you. Thanks, Daisy. Join us next time on Inside the Writer's Head, where we have conversations with lovers of books, lovers of the literary arts, Lovers of libraries, journalism, and lovers of Cincinnati. Talk to you next time. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer in Residence program. You can meet Danny at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writer in residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you.